If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, let me give you the rundown. Basically, it's the easiest way to make a podcast, and everything you need is all in one place, and here's how it works. Anchor lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup's like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to the most popular listening platforms, including Spotify, with a single tap. Anchor is also the only place you can publish a video podcast to Spotify. With Anchor, creators can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. The South is full of history, extraordinary tales of questionable characters, outlaws, heroes, and thought-provoking narratives passed down from generation to generation like grandma's recipes. These real-life stories and exaggerations of fiction have helped shape the South and have created larger-than-life accounts of legend. Each week we will uncover fun facts of historical events, interesting places, famous people, and everything in between from all around the South. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, YouTube, or your favorite podcast listening app to listen to the show for free. So grab your sweet tea, fried green tomatoes, and pull up a chair as we uncover little-known facts about the uncommon history of the South. Hello and welcome to Uncommon History of the South. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. Harold, it's been a couple weeks since we've been able to yes. actually do a podcast. But in the meantime, you've started on a new build. Yes. How's that going? What are you working on? Tell us about it. Well, um, uh, tried to step up a little bit in skill level uh, from the Model A, which may or may, may, or may not work, but we'll see. But, you know, you got to challenge yourself. I like to take on things and learn. You know, if, if I had it all figured out before I started it, I probably wouldn't enjoy it as much, you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's got to be aggravating and cost you extra money before it's fun, you know. But anyway, it's a 1925 Studebaker that was in a fire, and it was it ruined it, basically, the body. I mean, it was a beautiful car. It was a what they call a points car, and it was a very de- very well restored and everything. And it was in a building that caught fire beside a building, which scorched it really severely as far as the body. And um, so the long story short, ended up making a deal for it. And uh, we're stripping it down. We're going to rebuild it as a speedster, which is about all you can do other than just the, 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 to put it back in its original state, it would cost more than it would ever be worth. Right. So anyway, we're going to do that. We'll probably do a, we ought to go out to the garage one night and do this a Facebook thing and let people see some of this stuff and what we're into and so forth. Well, you know, that's one of the things we've talked about is um, maybe doing this podcast and one more to end season two. But I think until we start season three, maybe we could do some short videos. Uh, right. We could talk about your, your rifles. We can go out to the park, uh, do some other things, definitely do the vehicle. Right. I think that would be a good one. Yeah, th- there's a whole car culture out there and i like i said i never was a car guy so this is all kind of new to me in a sense the last four or five years but um there's a there's a vintage racing uh group out there and they're all over the united states all over the world actually especially popular in england and um so the pre-war cars which means in america pre-world war ii right uh and they actually over in england goodwood and these other tracks they race them 
So anybody wants to go on YouTube and, and Google pre-war racing, I think my wife is tired of watching. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on there all the time. Surely she, not. Yeah, sure. if she's not around. All right. So what happened today in Kentucky history? All right. November the 18th in 1861. The Confederate Sovereignty Convention was held at a fellow's house named William Frost in Russellville, Kentucky, and which called for secession from the Union uh, and declared Kentucky a Confederate state and with the state capital in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Did you know that? No. Yes. Was the, so the Confederate capital was in Bowling Green. Well, that, that convention, and then, you know, they tried to install that in in Frankfurt, okay, and then of course the Union had came in and they fled the state, you know, and yeah. so forth. But anyway, in 1861, the Confederate uh, Sovereignty Convention was held. In 1949, Albin Barkley became the only vice president to wed in office. Really? Yes. He <laughs> married uh, Janie Hadley. He was 71. Guess what? How, she, how old she was? I'm going to guess she was 18. No, she's a little older than that. He was 71. This was 1949. Oh, 49. So she was probably 23. 37. 37. Still robbing the cradle. Yeah. (laughs) Barkley was a widower, though. So anyway, uh, he was uh, the only vice president to win in office. 1953, the first meeting of the Kentucky Civil War Roundtable was held at the University of Kentucky, and Dr. Holman Hamilton was the speaker. Uh, in 2004, Big Bone Lick State Park officially opened, located in Boone County, the birthplace of American paleontology. And, you know, I've never been there. Now I need. I, I want to go. I want to go up there, and I want to go to Big Bone Lick State Park and the Ark. Are you like me? How many times have you driven by there mm-hmm. and said, man, I, I need to stop, I'm, but I don't have time today? Yeah. How yeah. many times? I don't know. Several, several times. And I've always been fascinated by stuff, and so – you know, need to, maybe we'll just take off and go do a podcast. There, Wait, there you go. Um, so is that all in Kentucky history? Yes. So this is going to be part three of Sue Monday. So mm-hmm. we'll be wrapping up Sue Monday, the boy named Sue. Yes. All right. Uh, as we mentioned in our previous podcast, his, his real name was uh, Marcellus Jerome Clark. And uh, he got the name tacked on him, Sue Monday, by... George Prentice, the editor of the Louisville Daily Journal, and we went through this in a previous podcast. So we're picking this up at part three. We're going to start time-wise in February of 1865. Okay. And um, we had previously talked about, Brian, about Quantrell and the Missouri guerrillas coming to Kentucky. Right. About these Kentucky guerrillas kind of joining forces, and this all became uh, uh, quite a formidable force there for a little while. And they weren't very well organized, and we had mentioned that we didn't fully understand what their objectives were, if they were any, other than pillaging and robbing. You know, it's just uh, it's hard to understand what the mindset of these people were. But in uh, February of 1865, February 18th to be exact, uh, the Kentucky guerrillas uh, attacked Fort Jones in Colesburg, Kentucky. And there the 12th Colored Infantry Artillery was stationed, and uh, this raid seems like it was led by Henry Magruder. Uh, at different times, we had different people leading it, so it's kind of hard to know. Was Sue Monday in charge? Was Magruder, Bill Marion, who was in charge? But Magruder seemed to be in charge at this place, uh, 31 men strong. They killed three men and robbed a number of citizens. 
they stopped at a farmhouse with a fellow named John Lilly, <laughs> and uh, and he wrote a journal about his life. And it was interesting how <laughs> he explained what happened to him. He said the gorillas came and stopped and exchanged two horses. Now, exchange meant they, <laughs> they left him two tired, wore-out horses and took two of his fresh horses. But later in that day, uh, Captain Robert Young, a federal, came and, and took his <laughs> – took his fancy bird gun, he said, worth 50 to $75, two coats and a pair of gloves worth $40. So it seems like it don't matter which side you's on, you're going to lose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But in this case, the gorillas actually treated him better. They at least left him with two wore-out horses instead of no horses at all. Yeah. And so the Federals actually uh, took more from him than, the, than these gorillas did. There was a drastic change of tactics for these guys about this time. Now, they weren't dumb. They were pretty shrewd. They began to realize that this war was not going to go their way. They knew that uh, that the things were – they could see no light at the end of the See the time. writing on the wall. Right. So in February of 1865, right after this event, uh, Magruder, Sue Mundy, Henry Metcalf, Jim Jones, and Henry Porter, and some others, and we don't know exactly who because you never can put exactly who was where with these guys – they came to the conclusion that uh, it was time for them to rejoin a regular army. And that way, when the war was over, they could be paroled instead of hung as guerrillas. So they moved west. They, were, they headed southwest. Probably to, They were headed probably to Missouri, to General Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S. And they were going to join up with him. And, of course, out there, people wouldn't know him right. or know about what they did here. As much have a little anonymity, anonymity, and they could possibly uh, be paroled out there where they be really hard here. Right. Uh, and in Hancock County, they robbed uh, as they headed west. They they robbed uh, James Snyder's store at Paleville. They got him for about three hundred and fifteen dollars plus some other stuff and three good horses. And at built at uh, Purcell Farm, they had stolen also some horses and. Uh, on and on as they as they go, they take as they go as they need. Well, then they got down in Breckenridge County, and uh, they came to a house and uh, 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 demanded food, uh, stole more horses from a neighbor, and um, they made this owner of the house, this Mr. Tall, ride with them, and they put him on a pony without a saddle. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't I, I, were they drinking probably i don't know they, they put this guy on a pony and then they made fun of him and as he and he almost you know he couldn't stay on it but they made him stay up with them and i'm, I'm sure that was a miserable thing for him to try to stay on this bareback pony oh, I'm sure. no pony ever rides good no. if you remember <laughs> no uh there they were joined by a guy named bill davis and Near Cloverport, the guerrillas were spotted by three Federals, uh, these three Federal troopers, Silas Taylor, Charles Hale, and a guy named William Stennett. And this was the uh, 1st of March, the 3rd in 1865. Um, this was the beginning of the end. They did not have any idea of the onslaught that was getting ready to come down upon them. So um, they got to this pate farm there on the county line, and they uh, these three uh, brave federal guys i mean they were outnumbered tremendously open fire but with rifles on the gorillas and uh 
after an exchange of fire stinted the federal guerrilla, uh, guerrilla chaser, he took off and left his two buddies there. And uh, so the two of them were had dismounted, and they were hiding behind trees, and they had this gun battle for went on for about 45 minutes. And finally, they made their way to a... Um, to a, a log cabin. And right before they got to the log cabin, one of them had peeked out behind this tree and got a clear shot at Bill Davison, one of the Confederate guerrillas, and shot him in the right arm, and it went through the arm and hit him in the chest, which would uh, prove to be a fatal wound. Uh, the two other Federals, uh, uh, excuse me, the two Federals that got to the log cabin in about 45 minutes of fighting the guerrillas, more Federal officers showed up so Stinnett what he had done he wasn't necessarily running from them. he run to get help from the others because he knew they were outnumbered so more began to arrive and I think it got up to like 45 of them and uh, they chased Magruder and um, shot him and hit him in the left chest the bullets didn't go all the way through him it just stuck in his lungs uh, the Jones was killed with some 16 bullets shot into him and then Magruder, even though he was wounded, he gave the directions for the rest of them to go to a cousin's of his uh, house. He had the presence of mind to know that he had a cousin that lived in the area, and they escaped, and they had gotten to this cousin to hide. You know, it's really remarkable how they knew it had different connections. Everywhere they went, they knew somebody, you know. Yeah. Um, Magruder... Uh, wounded pretty seriously, was taken to a farm where he was attended by Jerome Clark, and uh, he forced this farm owner by the name of Claycomb's son, Green, uh, to bring him food. Um, Magruder told Henry Porter to take the rest of the men and go back to Nelson County. Now, we always talked about how Nelson County was a haven for him. Right. So uh, Sue Mundy, Henry Metcalf, and Magruder stayed. And then the next day or two, the, the three remaining, remaining gorillas went to the John Cox farm. And uh, this was right on the Breckenridge uh, County line there. Um, and this was, the, this was the biggest mistake they made is by staying in that area. I guess they thought Magruder was too badly wounded to, to move. So they, they got to this barn, tobacco barn of a Dr. Jesse Lewis uh, had came, excuse me, the John Cox farm. Dr. Jesse Lewis was the doctor that came and tended to Magruder. So he was getting some medical attention. Um, Bill Davidson, after he had been shot severely, he, he made it to a cousin of his named Thomas Newman, which was a few miles away. And they took him back in this in the woods to this cabin, secluded place, because these Federals were everywhere looking for him. So they took him back to this log cabin, but he died of his wounds on March the 7th of 1865. He asked to be buried near that cabin. He did not want to, uh, for whatever reason, he wanted to be buried there. So they granted him his wishes, and they buried him there. Um, the... Uh, Next episode was the <laughs> Captain Lewis Marshall had about 50 federal troops, uh, Company B of the 30th Wisconsin Volunteers, under the command of Cyrus Wilson, Major Cyrus Wilson. They arrived at Brandenburg uh, aboard the Gray Eagle steamship. Uh, they marched about 10 miles to the Cox Farm. They had been telegraphed to come there that the guerrillas were 
hiding in that barn, so they, they had a plan to take them. And when they arrived there, um, Dr. Lewis pointed out their hiding place. They knocked on the door of the barn, believe it or not, just walked up and knocked. He said Sue Mundy came out shooting with both pistols, pistol in each hand, just started shooting. A um, couple of the guys was wounded, a couple of soldiers was wounded. Uh, one soldier, uh, <laughs> he, he, he just, uh, his name John White, he was killed. Uh, they kept telling him to get down and get back, and he, he wouldn't. And uh, so he get, got hit right in the chest, and he died on, on site. Um, Cyrus Wilson went back to the barn. Now, here's where it gets interesting for me is he, Miss Wilson must have been a pretty good talker because these guys were, you know, they were backed in a corner. They were desperate. Right. And he talked Sue Mundy or Jerome Clark into sitting down with him and, and talking. He said, let's just sit down and have a talk. So they sat down and smoked and had a talk. <coughs> Sue Mundy asked him, he said, are you going to hang me now? Are you going to hang me if I don't give up? He said, no, I'm not going to hang you. But he said, I'm going to take you back to Louisville. And he said, I'm pretty sure they'll hang you there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was pretty <laughs> honest with him. Yeah. But he said, if you don't go with me, you'll have no chance. Because he said, we will take you back dead or alive. So he gave well, him a few minutes to think about it. So they surrendered. So they were took taken to uh, put aboard the... Uh, Morning Star steamer, uh, and traveled north back to Louisville. Well, how much um, did Sue Mundy and Frank and Jesse James did their paths cross? How much did they have any kind of thing? Um, well, we we'll never know for sure. We know they ran together. You know, we talked about them raiding the horse farm at uh, Midway, Kentucky, in the last podcast. But at this point, they seem to be fragmented everywhere. It, see, Quantrell's whole bunch didn't stay together. So right. Monday's bunch didn't stay together. So you had these these little groups, and it they, it, I've studied this stuff probably thirty years, and I can't make total sense of it. No, okay, and I, and I can't other than some obvious objectives like what we were just talking about to to make their way to Missouri to get with a regular army so they could be paroled. It's hard to understand what their motives were, yeah. what they were trying to accomplish, and I'm not sure if they could talk to you today. They would even know what to tell you. But they seem to be moved by opportunity, um, revenge. Um, but I don't see a military objective, and that's 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 the thing that I can't make these guys regular soldiers. Yeah, they're more they're profiteers. Just, that yeah, and and that was true. Like I said, both sides, not yeah, just Confederate yeah, side. Right. Um, well, they get, they made it back to Louisville. Uh, Magruder's wounds, excuse me, wounds were not that bad uh he was shot in the in the lung but it didn't break any major blood vessels and that's why uh his pulse and things were good when they got him back they checked that stuff and of course he was put in the military hospital jerome clark was put on trial on march the 14th and uh he's his he claimed right off the bat to be a regular confederate soldier he blamed all the wrongdoing on quantrell and captain bill marion um, and his trial didn't last long. Now, I have a copy of his trial in there. I went to the National Archives some years ago, and I got a, a copy of the of the trial, and uh, there were several witnesses called, but it only lasted a day, and uh, he was sentenced to be hanged on March the 15th, 1865. So, you know, um, the, he didn't have much of a defense. There wasn't, there wasn't much of a defense there. I don't know if there's a defense. 
what the point of it would have been. But anyway, right. Um, now this guy that he blamed everything on <laughs> sent a letter to the Louisville Daily Journal. Now this this newspaper with George Prentice, the editor. He this seems to be the public format for the gorillas too. He would publish if they sent him a letter. He would publish it. So Bill Marion sent a letter to him telling him that if you if you harm any of my men, these three prisoners you have, he said, I'll kill 50 Union men. And uh, so <laughs> he published the letter, but it was on March the 25th, 1865, <laughs> after, <laughs> after Sue Monday was hung. Yeah. So this Reverend Talbot of St. John's Church uh, visited uh, Marcus Jerome Clark, Sue Monday, there in, in the uh, prison. Uh, he asked him if he had any you know, uh, concerns about his soul. He, he, of course, a witness to him, and he said that he, he asked him if he wanted to write any letters to anybody, and he said, yeah, I've got three or four people that I would like to write a letter to. So he wrote one to a great aunt and a uh, foster mother who was named Mary Tibbs. He wrote one to a sister of his named Mary Elizabeth Baker, or Barker, I'm sorry, uh, a cousin, Charles Bradshaw, who he, evidently thought a lot of but you remember the story about the girlfriend mm -hmm. uh mary porter or thomas uh, we called her molly of chaplain kentucky he wrote her a letter and um i'll read it to you he said my dear molly i have to inform you that of the sad fate of which awaits your true friend i am to suffer death this afternoon at four o'clock i send you from my chains a message of true love. As I stated on the brink, excuse me, stand on the brink of the grave, I do truly, fondly, and forever love you. I am truly yours, Marcus Jerome Clark. Huh. So um, there was a guy to witness this hanging of Sue Mundy. Now this was, you got to understand, this was, this guy had, because of the newspapers, because of the press of the day, making these guys, uh, uh, just notorious in Kentucky. You can imagine the crowd that was gathered in the biggest town that we had right. in the state at that time was in Louisville. There was a young writer there named Young Allison. His, his name is Young E. Allison. And for those that know Kentucky literature know that name very well, he was 12 years old when he, he watched this happen. And it was on the corner of 18th and Broadway today. If you go down there, the scaffold was built there. And he said that... Uh, Clark was taken out of the uh, the prison. Uh, he was put in, uh, only his his legs were in irons, his hands were free. Uh, this Reverend Talbot was with him, and uh, he covered his face with a handkerchief. Uh, said he wasn't crying. He said he just wanted to cover his face. He said there was a military band playing the Dirge March, which was, he said, uh, very sobering. Mm -hmm. He was marched to the scaffold. He said he showed no emotion. Uh, said his lips kept moving and thought he was praying, and he kept saying, Lord, have mercy on my soul. Uh, his state, his last statement, they asked him if he had anything he'd like to say. He said, I have lived and died for the Confederate cause. Uh, when he was hung, he was 20 years old. Wow. So you think about how young these guys were. They had just started life. Yeah. And they had witnessed so much and been a part of so much violent, just, I mean, brutal stuff. Uh, the scene was pretty hectic. Um, now, strangely enough, a bull <laughs> got loose. 
from the local stockyards. And some, you know, like I said, a lot of things, you can't make this stuff up. But I don't know if somebody ran it down there or it got down there on its own or whatever, but they said it was right in the middle of the street, pawing, slinging dirt everywhere. <laughs> and everybody fleeing, and, and they all thought that that was possibly the other gorillas coming to rescue him, you know, and maybe run some cattle through there to stampede or whatever. But anyway. Maybe no, the bull was, was a confederate. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, wild rumors, you know, the, the town was in upheaval for some time because they thought that, these gorillas would come come back and burn the place down, and they just you know how mob mentality sometimes can get. But now, what's really strange about this, Brian, is that they, they when they got rid of hanging, they took his cap off and they threw it under the scaffold, and they put the hood over him, and then put the noose, you know, like you've seen in the movies. Well, um, they fought over his jacket and that hat, and I thought that was kind of strange. And some said they fought over it because not for souvenirs, but because they thought he'd sold money in the lining. Mm. And there was a brawl over this, over this jacket. And I know I had seen those Kentucky buttons that are a Kentucky button, a state seal button that supposedly come off of his jacket. Uh, and who knows? Yeah, if it really was or not. Uh, but the vice was tightening on these gorillas in Kentucky. Um, Quantrell's demise. You know, we talked about they had seen the end coming, but did Quantrell? I don't know. He didn't seem to change a whole lot. He stayed, still stayed in Kentucky. I don't know if he had a place to go. See, I think he couldn't go back to Missouri because that was worse than where he, what he got into here. Yeah. So I don't know if he, he ran out of places to go. Uh, I don't know where he would have went other than maybe to Mexico, if he could have got to Mexico or something. Uh, it was first part of May, I think uh, May the 10th, 1865, him at 15 men. It was pouring down rain, uh, terrible day. Uh, they had ridden down uh, the, the road there in Bloomfield, Kentucky, between Bloomfield and uh, Springfield, Kentucky. There's a little area there called Wakefield. And... The farmer's name was James Hetty Wakefield. He had, he had the town was named after that family. They'd been there for many years, and his house and farm. And I've been to it. It sits way back off the road, quite a ways, maybe a mile or so off the road. There it is today. The road that you go through there today, where the historic marker is, is in the same place it always was. The difference was there was actually a railroad spur that went through there. Okay. And you can still, if you know where to look, you can still see that railroad spur through there. Uh, again, like I said, it was pouring down rain. There was a black uh, blacksmith, a Negro blacksmith there that had a shop right at the bottom of the hill where you go up the hill to the Wakefield farm. And his name was Olmstead Jacobs. Uh, Quantrell and his bunch come riding through. They went up the hill. They were headed to Mr. Wakefield's. They had been there before. Uh, they knew him well. Um, they, he had a big barn out beside his house. And they had got to was wanting to get to that barn to get out of the rain, you know, just, just as a refuge. So they had gotten there. A few months later, Edwin Terrell and his group of federal guerrilla chasers just happened to be coming down by circumstance, did not know that these guerrillas were there. They came down the road, and they saw – now, these guys were pretty sharp. I guess they're used to tracking people mm -hmm. and everything, and they saw all these hoof prints going up the hill, so they knew that that had to be a group of – 
of guerrillas or soldiers. Right. So they stopped and asked this blacksmith. They said, hey, did you see a bunch of men go by there? And he said, yeah, I saw them go up there, but I don't know who they were. So he said, they, but they were armed. They were guerrillas. So he knew that he knew where all the Federals were, so he knew that that had to be some of the guys he was after. Right. So he rides up this up this hill and rides in on them, and it's pouring down rain. Well, Quantrell's men, <laughs> they were laying around in the hay, throwing corn cobs at one another, drinking whiskey, <laughs> drying out, had their clothes hanging up. You know, you can just imagine the scene. They had no idea what was ready to ride down on them. So Dick Glasscock looks up, and he sees them coming, and he hollers, here they come, boys. And see, all started jumping and running and trying to grab horses and, and grab their guns, and you can imagine the scene. Well, Quantrell rushes out, and he has a new horse that he had just, his other horse, old Charlie, that he had had for years that was such a good gorilla horse, uh, had come hamstrung or something. He had to put him down, and he'd gotten a new horse and that horse wasn't used to that, and he couldn't get on him. He couldn't mount him. He was he he couldn't get him stand still long enough with all the shooting and everything. So Quantrell runs down and he tries to jump on the back of the horse of of another gorilla, and when he did, they shot him, and he 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 got hit right in the spine. Um, he uh, it, it paralyzed him immediately, and then they shot at him again, and it shot his trigger finger off. Really? Believe it or not, wow. uh, they hit his finger and shot his finger off. There was two other guys that were killed in this fracas: uh, Clark Hawkinsmith and a fellow named Dick Glassock. And uh, Glasscock is and uh, Hawkinsmith are buried in the cemetery there in Bloomfield. I've been to their graves uh, several times with different groups. I've toured and taken them there and everything. Uh, Quantrell was taken to the Wakefield House. Now, this is interesting because when Terrell shoots him, he doesn't know who he is. He really doesn't know him. I mean, he's after this guy for six months or a year and doesn't know when he ran into him that that's who it was. Yeah. So he asked him who he was, and he said he was Captain Clark with the 4th Missouri Cavalry. So he just lies to him, you know, and then mm -hmm. so they take him to the house, and they tell Mr. Wakefield, they said, no, we're going to leave him here, and we're going to go after the others, and if he's not here, when we get back, we'll burn this place to the ground. And then they pillaged Mr. Wakefield's house because they thought since he was harboring guerrillas that they'd give them the right to rob him and take what they wanted from him, which they did. Right. And they left, and they come back a couple days later, and during this time, this two days, Frank James was in Deetsville, Kentucky, and he'd got wind that, one of the guys that got to him and told him what had happened. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, he takes off and rides back to Wakefield, takes a chance of getting caught, and goes into Quantrell and says, hey, if you want to get out of here, I'll get you out of here. And Quantrell said, no. He said, leave me alone. I'm a dying man. I don't want to be moved. He said, I can't feel my legs. I can't ride. I can't. I, I, I don't want to be moved. I want to die here. So... Frank James and him exchange uh, last words, and Frank rides away. Uh, the last time you ever see his partner in crime there. Um, the uh, Quantrell is taken to Louisville. Finally, Terrell figures out who he's got. And of course, it goes to his head, man. I mean, he's he's captured the, the notorious uh, Quantrell. Um, he's taken to the U.S. Military Prison Hospital in Louisville, where he lives for 27 days. Hmm. 
and then he dies. And then he's buried, Quan Carroll is buried in Portland Cemetery in Louisville. Now, Brian, it would take an hour to talk about the burial of Quantrell and the reburial and the reburial of his bones. And sometime when we covered some other subjects, we might come back to this, and I want to do a story just on the <laughs> the bones of William Clark Quantrell because it's quite a story. But anyway, he was temporarily built, was, uh, buried excuse me, at uh, Portland Cemetery in Louisville. Um, fate of the other gorillas. We'll talk about one-armed Sam Berry, uh, the longest-held prisoner of the Civil War. Um, he was in prison till July the 4th, 1873. He was 36 years old. Uh, he was originally sentenced to be hung, and then they commuted to life in, uh, of hard labor. Uh, he uh, was in the process of probably going to be released, and then he gets a fever, and I, and I don't know what, which one or what type, mm -hmm. but he dies before he can get out, mm -hmm. and that's in 1873. Probably, the, as far as we know, the longest held prisoner of the Civil War. Uh, Jim Davis, one of the other guerrillas, you know, this, this guy had a form of epilepsy, and that, believe it or not, probably saved his life because uh, he was to be executed, and he had seizures. And so at that time, uh, they did not know if that was, you know, some type of mental illness or whatever. And because of his ill health, he was released in April of 1867. So he was paroled and went on and left, lived a normal life. Henry Turner, one of the other guerrillas, uh, sentenced to be hung, was commuted to 10 years. Uh, and then he was released in April of 1866. So he only... He, he served probably less than a year. Uh, Bl Black Dave Martin, <laughs> you know, the, the guy that had the worst name of the bunch, you know, like the mystery mean Black Dave Martin, mm -hmm. he was paroled uh, by Palmer. He didn't even, even serve at all. Really? So evidently his, you know, like he wasn't the dark, mean individual that when you think of black, you know, you think of, evil or the black, black heart you know yeah that's kind of the context that i took that in but no he he uh he paroled by palmer he didn't even serve a day huh. uh thomas henry was sentenced to five years of hard labor but was released a year later um now i wind this up by talking about jerome clark's burial he was taken back to simpson county kentucky which is down on the southern border of kentucky uh to the family cemetery and uh, then they, they put a road through there, and they were going to have to move these graves. And so they, uh, they, they, they had to dig him up. Well, there were some people that were alive that knew him. There was one guy that was still living that actually had seen him, and they said, we want to make sure that that's who this is. So believe it or not, they, uh, they opened the casket, opened the coffin, and he said, yep, that was him. He had... He still could see the the gray hair, um, excuse me, the gray uniform and the long hair, and he said the real giveaway was his neck was broke. So he was pretty sure that that was because of a hanging. Yeah. So uh, he was uh, reinterred in the cemetery there in in uh, Greenville, Kentucky. Wow. All right. So thank you for being part of Uncommon History of the South. Uh, if you would like to help support our podcast, please share our podcast with your friends and family. 
Make sure to subscribe for free on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, iHeart Music, YouTube, or your favorite podcast listening app. And if you listen to our podcast on Apple, we would it would do a, us a big favor if you would leave us a five-star review and a comment. Uh, this will get us a higher ranking and uh, help others find our podcast. To find out more about the podcast, keep up with what we're doing. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And don't forget, Christmas is coming up. Uh, don't forget to check out our store. We've got great merch. The links will be in our show notes. Um, Uncommon History of the South is created and produced by Harold Edwards and Brian Wolfe.